Welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm Kirsten Patrick, one of CMAJ's deputy editors, and with me today to discuss highlights of the March 3rd issue of the journal is Donald McCauley, associate editor, family medicine practitioner, and blogger extraordinaire. Oh, thank Hello, you, Donald. Kirsten. Thank you, Kirsten. <laughs> and so illustrated on the cover is our combination of articles on nocturnal leg cramps. One of them is a research paper, and the other one is a commentary. So going first to the research paper, we're looking at a very interesting study with unusual methods. Yeah, it really is very interesting. I mean, Scott Garrison, I chatted to Scott about this at a conference recently. And what they've done is they've done two methods. They've looked at leg cramps. And do you know what the most interesting one is? The way they've looked at the searches on Google Trends to see what people are looking at when they look at Google Trends. Now, we've, we've heard them chat in the past about how you can use Google Trends to identify flu epidemics. I, I, I'd seen that, that they'd seen flu epidemics noted on Google Trends before they were able to get the virology studies. But this is a fascinating way of looking at searches on leg cramps. And particularly here, they're looking at the seasonality. Anecdotally, people say that leg cramps are more common in one season or another. And they're looking to see if that's true, isn't that right? Because they've looked both at Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. And when you look at each hemisphere, you have a sinusoidal graph and they're mirror images. When you look at Australia versus North America, they're mirror images. So, th- so this doesn't appear to be unusual. It seems to be this is a reflection of the seasonality of the event. Absolutely, driven by more than one region. Absolutely. I didn't know you could use Google Trends to look at regions. And then they're also looking at prescriptions in the BC database for new prescriptions for the drug quinine, which is used to treat nocturnal leg cramps. The commentary looks at quinine as a drug to treat this condition. And the author is not in favor of using it regularly. Why is this? Well, leg cramps are are quite common in practice. And as a family doc, I looked at this and it it unnerved me a little bit. When patients come with leg cramps, you really don't have many options. And in terms of the therapeutic option, Quinine seemed to be the one that we, we tended to use. But there are side effects and problems with this drug, which mean that's not recommended. And if you use it, you're using it off patent. The authors do qualify it, and they say that if you have an informed patient and you explain to them the nature of the leg cramps and the nature of the side effects of the medication, then it may be possible to undertake, I suppose, a therapeutic trial. And coming back to the work from the UBC group on the seasonality of leg cramps, they suggest that you take a holiday in in the colder time of year when leg cramps are, are less common. Absolutely. So quinine side effects are not common, but when they do occur, they can be very serious and sometimes fatal. So it's important to bear this in mind and do take time to listen to the audio interviews with the authors. So Donna, we've got another commentary in this issue, and it's looking at the use of electronic medical records in primary care to do research. Now, this is sort of a a new phenomenon in Canada, it seems. Well, perhaps not a new phenomenon in tertiary and secondary care, but certainly in, in the realm of primary care. I know Richard Bertwistle looks at this in some detail, and I know he has quite a lot of international experience and looks at, at um, databases worldwide. Now, this particularly interested me because of a number of factors. Firstly, we've seen a lot of research using databases, particularly from general practice databases and consultation databases from the UK and from the Netherlands. It's tremendous that we're looking for EMRs here in Canada because it gives us a great opportunity to do research. 
Now this is a really, it's really very wide and important issue in terms of defining not just the nature of research but the nature of practice. So in terms of defining the nature of general practice, electronic medical records allow us to look at those diseases that occur in the community. There are a number of diseases that occur in the community which don't ever appear in hospitals and we've already talked about one of them already. I mean leg cramps. Mm -hmm. what, what, what hospital specialist is going to know the first thing about leg cramps or the difficulties of dealing with it? I'm very interested in this. I think it's tremendous. I think it creates great opportunity for future research, but it's also great for GPs themselves. So our other two research papers in this issue are population-based studies based on databases. One is from Canada and the other is from Taiwan. Now, the one from Canada looks at a very well-established research network, and they are looking at the combination between the drug spironolactone and the antibiotic trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. They look over a number of years at sudden deaths amongst patients taking spironolactone, and they look at an association with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and they find that trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole in comparison to a number of other antibiotics that they look at, is unsafe when it comes to co-prescription with spironolactone. Now, we're obviously looking at a very unique patient population who will be prescribed these two drugs together. But essentially, the conclusion of the study is that we shouldn't use these two drugs together because they increase the risk over the use of other antibiotics. The other study that uses routinely collected data comes from Taiwan, and they're looking at polypharmacy, particularly anticholinergic burden, and two outcomes, admission to hospital for any cause or death. The authors of this study used Taiwan's longitudinal health insurance database, which is well-established and quite famous, to gather data on drug use for people aged 65 and over, and to link it to the two outcomes that I've mentioned. They worked out a number of medications and appropriateness of those medications, looking at anticholinergic burden using a validated tool. And they find that polypharmacy and particularly high anticholinergic burden is related to hospital admission and to death in the group from 65 to 85. But over 85, it seems that there are, is a lower rate of polypharmacy, which suggests that perhaps doctors are taking the initiative to remove unnecessary drugs from their older patients, which is something that uh, the Choosing Wisely campaign, which we've been featuring, has been talking about a lot. The first study you mentioned about the trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole study and the risk of sudden death. Now, th this was a really nice piece of work in terms of a case control study. And they looked at this antibiotic and they looked at two other antibiotics, uh, ciprofloxacin, was one of the ones that they've looked at, and norfloxacin and nitrofurantoin. Now, those, uh, those are common enough antibiotics now, and they used as their comparison amoxicillin. Now, I have to be honest, this struck me. I was a little surprised by this because this is a medication I haven't used for a long time, the combination of trimethoprim and uh, sulfamethoxazole. Generally, we would have moved towards trimethoprim alone and wouldn't have used this combination. And in a number of countries, they've moved away from this combination. I think this piece of evidence is another reason to move away from this combination and to try and stick to the, to the single item, and that's the tri trimethoprim alone. The second study from Taiwan, they have a great, bit of, a great database there. 
Now, what's very interesting about this is the fact that in the older patients, these doctors seem prepared to reduce the number of medications. And that's interesting because if you stick very closely to guideline-related medicine, it can be difficult to stop medications in older patients. Now, actually, this fits quite nicely with, with our colleague Ken Flagel's commentary on tertiary hospitals. Ken is looking at this tendency of ours to classify care as primary, secondary and tertiary. And he feels that sometimes this is done in an unhelpful way. He says that it's okay to classify a hospital as being a facility that supplies tertiary level care. And it's okay to classify procedures as being tertiary level procedures for the, for the purposes of billing. But we mustn't forget that we have a whole patient and patients don't fit into these categories of primary care patients, secondary care patients, or very difficult patients. And often it's the patients who are presenting to tertiary care who have multimorbidities and complex chronic problems who don't need to be treated as an entity, a singular entity, but who really need the continuity of care that primary care offers. The tendency could be in tertiary care because it is so hyper-specialised that you only think of your own individual condition that the specialist is dealing with. So if you have a number of conditions, you just pile on the number of drugs and you pile on the number of medications and every specialist feels that his medication is the most appropriate and most important and no one is prepared to stop the medications. But when you look at primary care and you're faced with dealing with a patient who's on multiple medications with the potential risks that come up in this Taiwan study, where they looked at the possible things with anticholinergic risk and all the age groups was polypharmacy and the potentially inappropriate medication. Those were the things that were difficult. So it's marrying the risks of under-treatment with the burden of over-treatment. Well, talking of specialist and tertiary care, our clinical review in this week's issue is on a very specialist topic indeed. It explores the use of immunoglobulin as an immune-modulating therapy. Intravenous immunoglobulin is derived from pooled plasma from thousands of healthy donors and contains polyspecific IgG. There are many indications for its use, and the authors discuss what these are. They also look at the evidence supporting all these indications, the safety profile, and costs. The conditions that that jumped out at me were um, severe rhesus hemolytic disease. I mean, that's, that's something that we're all very familiar with. Streptococcal and staphylococcal sepsis and toxic shock syndrome, certainly they're conditions that you see in the news quite a lot. But SLE... Now, SLE is another very interesting condition, and and I have come across patients of mine who've been treated with uh, intravenous immunoglobulin for SLE. So they go into hospital and have their treatment and come out. It's not something I was particularly familiar with myself, but what was interesting for me was there is a table of the side effects of the condition. And that for me was very interesting as well, because it meant that I could link up the condition the level of evidence and the side effects that my patient had been telling me about. And it's important to tell patients about side effects that they might experience if they're going for these sorts of therapies, which are supposed to be revolutionary. Um, We have a very interesting practice section in this week's issue, four very good articles. What jumped out at you from the practice section, Donald? Well, Kirsten, what slowly crawled out of one of the wound pictures on this was these little larvae. I mean, that really took me by surprise. 
these uh, subcutaneous burrowing larvae. I What's mean, really surprising is that one of the cases originated in Canada Yeah. on a yeah. camping trip. Yeah. That's why I don't camp. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, I mean, I think you probably have experience of these from, from outside Canada, Kirsten. Have you come across this before? When I was young, I, I grew up in South Africa and I had relatives who lived in Zimbabwe. And whenever we went up to visit them in Zimbabwe, we always had to know that if we put our washing, our laundry, on the line outside to dry, we had to iron everything, regardless of what it was, to kill the fly eggs. So these two articles are about myasis, which is an infestation of diphtheria fly larvae. The imported case is uh, a young man who went on holiday to rural Belize, and when he got back, he noticed three small lesions on his chest which he thought were mosquito bites but they didn't clear up and they continued to ooze and eventually he presented to his family practitioner with them and with a little bit of lateral pressure and suction three larvae were retrieved from the wounds. The second case is even more horrifying and we have a a very scary looking picture of a larva seen in a woman's eye. Now this woman had been camping in Paris Sound, Ontario and came back with a red eye, which was subsequently discovered to house a larva. Yeah, I mean, the, the picture going with this shows the swelling underneath the eye. And, it, you know, it's the kind of swelling that you could easily, you know, not ex- pick up this diagnosis, particularly in someone who was on a camping holiday in Canada. You, would, you wouldn't think of this straight away. The, the key to this, I think, is that there was a punctum. But the other thing that I find fascinating with this is the treatment is so straightforward and simple. That what you do is you put petroleum jelly over the punctum and because the the, the larva cannot breathe anymore, they then have to come to the surface and you can get at them. It's really quite an unusual and um, really quite strange uh, piece of work, I have to say. What else did you notice that caught your eye? Well, there's another case report there which is Again, it's rather esoteric. It's called the turkey wattle sign. I, I didn't know what a turkey wattle sign was at all until I, until I read this. And what this is, this is if you grit your teeth tightly and you tense your masseter muscles, this was a hemangioma that came out as a bump when this patient clenched their teeth. Now, what happens is they, they suggest in this case report that because you tense the muscles, it, it ties off the blood supply from the hemangioma so the hemangioma bulges it sounds when we talk about it it sounds very hard to explain what it looks like but there's a very nice video with this as well where the authors have shown a video and show what this turkey wattle sign is wonderful to have the multimedia we've been focusing quite a bit on multimedia and uh, blogs podcasts in the last few months at cmaj the back page is actually a collection of excerpts from our blogs it's now called digestif And you feature on the back page in this issue. Donald, you were blogging in the immediate aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo massacre in France. And you were in the country at the time, I think. Yeah, I happened to be passing by Paris at the time. And it was really, the whole country was energised by this. Everyone was out. It was at the time when there were millions on the streets in, in Paris. But the parallel I I looked at was in the context of is there freedom of the press in medicine? And there is to a certain extent providing you don't step out of line. 
one of the risks and benefits of social media, one of the great benefits is you can communicate with an audience very rapidly and you can discuss things on social media and explore things in considerable depth. But the risk is that it can become a campaign and people can run into trouble if there is a mass movement against what happens on social media. Because in a sense, once you say something on social media, even though you do it very quickly and it seems rather trivial, you can't retract it. It's, it's out there and you can run into trouble. Now, one more thing that I wanted to note on the back page, DJ Steve, is a, a blog ex- excerpt from a young resident who noticed that on diabetic menus in hospital, juice is on offer. And she blogs about thinking that this is an unhealthy option for diabetics because juice is basically sugar and shouldn't be an option for them. And it links quite closely with a new story that we have run in this issue, looking at the notion of malnourishment and how malnourishment is not well addressed among inpatients in Canada. Now, that news story was very popular and was picked up very widely on social media. Well, that's probably all we've got time for. We've discussed the main highlights of the March 3rd issue of CMAJ, but there are still the letters, the humanities section, and a few other little bits and pieces. I'm Kirsten Patrick, and with me has been Donald McCauley.